Arvind began working as a teacher. He now analyzes data security features. After law school, Arvind worked at Wilmer Hale. His career is a fascinating tale. And uh, with that, I am thrilled to introduce you to uh, Arvind Swaminathan, and he is uh, a partner at Oryx. So thank you so much for joining the podcast, Arvind. Thanks, Noah. Great. So uh, let's get started from the beginning. You grew up uh, in New Jersey. Talk a little about growing up and, uh, you know, did you always view yourself working in uh, in cybersecurity law? Uh, no, I, uh, I probably don't think anybody even thought about what cybersecurity law was at the time. Uh, so I grew up in like rural, I grew up in like suburban Jersey, uh, you know, went to high school there uh, and then you know, mostly did, you know, regular kid stuff. I uh, ran in, I ran in high school, uh, worked, you know, worked odd jobs in the summers. Um, but, you know, it's pretty average upbringing in New Jersey. That's great. Now, yeah, let's get into some of those uh, odd jobs and whatnot. So yeah. you worked at the pet store, you fixed a pipe organ one summer. Talk about uh, those, those first experiences yeah. in the career path. Yeah, so my first job was working at a pet store that was like down, basically down the street, um, selling people like fish out of fish tanks, which was pretty hilarious. Um, and then, you know, I did like, I did pretty traditional jobs during the summer. Like I worked at a grocery store as a cashier and bagging groceries. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned probably the coolest job I had was um, one summer, uh, there was a pipe organ that needed to be rebuilt. And so I got a job rebuilding a pipe organ. It was like, I think an 80 year old pipe organ. Um, and so, you know, gluing things together, you know, nailing things together, like kind of re-putting together and like learning how a pipe organ works was was pretty fascinating. Um, probably got exposed to some toxic glues that probably didn't do my health very good in small spaces, but uh, it was super interesting. Fascinating. Okay, yeah. So then uh, you went to college at uh, Cornell. So talk about going to school there and uh, any yep. jobs when you were there. Uh, yeah. So I went to Cornell for four years. Um, I was like an interdisciplinary major. Um, and you know, I worked, uh, I worked as a, a tutor and a study skills person in biology, uh, cause I was pre-med in college and thought I was going to go to medical school. And so did a lot of stuff in that space. Um, and that was fun. Uh, I was like a TA for a little while in a biology class and I tutored, uh, I ran a study skills, um, center for biology which was like from six to eight I think were my hours which nobody ever came in so it really was just me like lying on the couch napping until somebody came in uh and then the uh, I stayed I spent my summers at Cornell and I worked in the hotel that they have there so I was a uh, I started as a prep cook moved up to a line cook uh was an assistant for a chef so it's a five-star hotel on the Cornell campus so uh that's where I learned to cook uh, was as a line cook at the Statler Hotel on the Cornell campus. Wow, and you still uh, cook a lot today? Uh, unfortunately, I am the cook in our family, and so I cook all the time. So that's great. What what, uh, what was your most recent dish? Oh, um, your favorite. Well, put it that way. Well, I'll tell you the one that I have not perfected yet, which is the one that plagues me. So, like, I get it pretty right by the second time or third time I'm making something. But there's a beef short rib that I just can't get right. Uh, it just doesn't come out the right way. And I've done it like four times. And my family says, please stop cooking this. It's not good. 
but I'm convinced I can get it right. And when I get it right, it's going to be delicious. But um, I think I'm going to be making it for myself uh, until I get it right. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. And then, so so you were thinking about pre-med at that point, and I think you, you were a teacher after. So talk about, yeah. I guess... Were you already thinking law school by once you graduated? And, no, and about your not at all. years teaching. Yeah, so I uh, was pre med. I decided to take a couple years before going to medical school, uh, just take a break. Uh, and I was a high school teacher at a small private independent school in northern New Jersey, in Englewood, New Jersey, um, where I taught math, science, and computer science. And then about halfway through. Uh, my two-year teaching stint, I decided I didn't want to go to medical school because it just I didn't think that was what I wanted to do. And so, and then I kind of looked around uh, to do a graduate school program. I didn't know in what. Um, thought about getting my PhD in education and spending my um, spending some time at Columbia Teachers College. Um, but I basically went around campuses looking at course catalogs. Um, I was at the boss. I was at Boston University because uh, at, at the time was my my girlfriend was pulled open a course catalog, was flipping through things, came across the law school curriculum and all the classes. And don't ask me why, thought it was fascinating. And so decided sort of sitting on the lawn at the BU campus that I'd apply to law school. Uh, wow. And so that's what I did. Interesting. And uh, as far as, you know, you taught computer science in probably what, 1997, 1998? Uh, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, so I taught computer science in from 97 to 99 to high schoolers, which was a trip. Uh, at that time, you know, we were teaching in Visual Basic. So mm -hmm. I learned to program in Fortran and in Pascal and in COBOL. Um, but then we taught Visual Basic to uh, kids who were um, eighth, no, ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders, so mostly high school students um, when I was there. And so that was, um, so I spent a lot of time programming uh basic things for high schoolers well it's pretty revolutionary to have that back then at a high school i mean even today uh, a yeah. lot of high schools don't have that so wow it was sort of the first start of this of like a stem program like if you think about mm -hmm. what stem is today and you go back to what this independent school was doing they took math science and tech and so it's called an mst program math science and technology and so the idea was that you learn what you learn in math and learn in science, the applications are in technology. By the way, this is 97, right? So this was sort of like really cutting edge. And so we had a math and a science curriculum at the school. I was brought in to teach technology. So you would take whatever the, whatever the kids learned in math and learned in science, we would apply them and I would teach a technology-based class. And one of the things that we did was teach computer programming as an application skill to integrating your math and science curriculum. And so that was what we did. And I taught all the 11th graders in the MST program Eventually, we teach the ninth graders in the MST program as well. But that was, that was, if you think about today, that was really the, that's really sort of like a, the foundation of what today's STEM programs look like. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. and you know you work today in cybersecurity. Do you, is that part of the motivation uh, those days teaching? Uh, I mean, what I would say is it certainly helped. Um, teaching actually was really helpful to become a trial lawyer, right? Because at the end of the day, like I think. I think trial law and doing trial work is a lot about teaching complicated concepts to people who have no idea what you're talking about and sometimes don't really have a whole lot of interest. So if you think about teaching technology to 11th graders, right, back in 1997, uh, it was pretty it was pretty fundamental to like becoming a trial lawyer. So, but certainly my, what I learned like 
programming and doing all those kinds of things, like in the very early days of the internet was like foundational to a set of skills that I've used throughout my career, right? Whether it was at different law firms doing technology-based litigation or whether it was as a prosecutor doing cyber investigations um, or today uh, in my current practice. Yeah, great perspective. And um, okay, so then let's jump into your time uh, at law school. I guess talk a little more. You mentioned there's something about the, the, the courses that you saw really piqued your interest. What was it? Uh, I can't remember. And I will tell you, I probably didn't take them at, co- at law school because I'm not sure anything at law school was like super fascinating. <laughs> um, but I mean, so I, I, yeah, I went to BU Law uh, and I mean, I was pretty, I was pretty geeked out by civil procedure and some of the other things. But, um, you know, like, again, there was no such thing as cyber law. There, I mean, the mm-hmm. closest thing that you got to it was IP and tech law which uh, even back in, you know, 02, 03, wasn't what it was today. So, you know, I I basically stuck to, you know, the blocking and tackling of normal things. I'd say I, I loved things like criminal procedure, criminal law, and, you know, I ultimately became a prosecutor. And so, like, one of the things I've always found fascinating is, which is privacy related, is like Fourth Amendment search and seizure law. And so mm-hmm. became kind of like a buff around that stuff for a little while when I was in law school, and then obviously when I was a prosecutor. Great. So out of law school, you, uh, for a couple of years, you worked at uh, Wilmer Hare. I, Hale, uh, talk about uh, that experience. Yeah. So I, uh, I never thought I would work at a big law firm, uh, but that was the opportunity that was seemed like the best opportunity at the time. So um, I worked at uh, what was Hale and Door at the time, which was an old Boston based law firm. It became Wilmer Hale while I was still there um, and really just kind of did everything. Like I was really like I did white collar work, class action litigation, trade secret litigation, kind of you name it in the litigation space I did. Um, But my time there was just fantastic. Um, Largely because I had some great, great mentors there that did a ton of teaching and coaching um, and really helped shape my career. Like people who are like trial luminaries like Bill Lee and Jerry Fasher were just amazing people to learn from in the early parts of your career and really figure out what it was to be a lawyer. But also what it was to be a trial lawyer. Um, so I had like, I had a really, I mean, I had an amazing experience uh, at Hale and Door. Uh, I was sad to leave, but uh, but it was, it was, I mean, it was really a great experience and still close to a lot of those folks now and um, still call Bill for guidance when I need advice. Well, wow, that's great. And then yeah. uh, you took some time off from the the law firm route and you, you clerked a little bit uh, for a year. Talk about that. Yeah, I wanted to move to Seattle. Uh, my the the woman who I was with, uh, who I'm still with, uh, my wife, wanted to move to Seattle, and so uh, I found a job clerking on the Ninth Circuit. So I did that for a year for uh, Judge Tallman, which was great. Uh, and then I went back to the law firm. So I've gone back. You know, I've, I've sort of over my career like moved around quite a bit uh, until I landed at Oric, um, and a lot. And I've gone into like you know, spend some time in private practice, go to government, spend some time in private practice, go to government came back to private practice. So I've like moved quite a bit back and forth, uh, but I spent a year clerking for Judge Tallman, which was which was great. Uh, he was a great judge to work for. And um, that, was a, that was a super fun experience. Fascinating. And then uh, you went on to Wilson Sonsini uh, in 2005. So get into that, that was in California? Yeah, so I stayed in Seattle. Uh, I was the oh, first litigation associate that Wilson Sonsini hired when it opened its, its litigation practice in Seattle. Um, uh, and there they were focused initially on securities class action and shareholder derivative litigation. 
So for better part of two or three years, I did a lot of securities, 10B5 class actions, a lot of shareholder driven litigation. Um, but I also just did a lot of other things, right? I was just sort of a general litigator. Um, did a lot of like trade secret litigation, breach of contract litigation, I mean, just sort of anything under the sun that was litigation oriented, I did. Um, and it was there that I think I that that I started to develop what what today is a very big part of our practice, which is the counseling practice, right? Where it's not in the middle of litigation, but like I was oftentimes as an associate advising clients on litigation risk issues um, in the context of deals or potential disputes or issues that had come up for them. And so that became a counseling practice where it wasn't a huge part of my time, but it was really formative to get in and try to understand what clients' risk appetite was, what their business objectives were, and thinking about what our skill set could bring to help them solve problems. And so that was actually probably the most fun part of the practice was having a counseling practice where you were, you know, again, not in litigation where you're in some kind of adverse situation, but just advising them on what they what you thought they should do. Um, and it was great. That's the foundation of the practice that I have today, right? And so I got an opportunity to do that as an associate at Wilson because um, I had great, again, I, I had great mentors all throughout my career. And so um, Barry Kaplan, who was there, just was, you know, said like, hey, this is an opportunity, you should go do this and was really encouraging and supportive and got some great opportunities to learn how to do that work for clients um, and problem solve, which is, again, a great part of what we do today. Interesting. And, and talk about that a little bit as far as, uh, you know, you have, like you mentioned, you had like, not much of your, uh, your job was, was working in that one area that was really transformative for you. What, you know, when people are facing something like that, where they just have little windows of their job that they really feel like they're able to shine. How do you capitalize on those uh, moments? Yeah. So as an associate, I think they're learning opportunities. Like it, you, you learn to listen a lot and you learn to understand what's the problem you're trying to solve. Right. And I think litigators don't do this very well, like by training, because the problem you're trying to solve is win a case. Right. But that's not really a problem. That problem emerged for some other reason. There was some other business reason or some other reason why this problem emerged and ended up in litigation. Right. So it was it was, it was about going back and kind of thinking about why did this happen? Why are we sitting in a situation where we're on the other side of a table from whomever it is and thinking about the business and learning about the businesses? And so for me, it was like a really important to learn from that experience. And it was a great opportunity to like practice create problem solving, right? So I, I remember very clearly a problem for a client that we had who, uh, by the way, was like an idol of mine growing up and ended up being a client. And so I got to work with him and he was involved in some litigation, but it was underlying was like a business problem. And so we were sitting around uh, at after dinner, kind of just, you know, talking about stuff. And I was like, look, here's an idea. I don't know if this is a good idea or a bad idea, but it just came to me. And if you're interested, we should go explore it together. Um, and I was with the partner and we talked about it and he's like, we should go pitch this to, you know, the client. So, so we went and we were, we were with dinner at dinner with the client and he said, go talk to him about it. So when talked to him about it and he's like, that's a great idea. Let's go see where that goes. And so we did it, by the way, it turned out not to be able to work, but it was, I thought it was the time where you could say, there's a problem. I think I have a way that we might be able to solve it start to talk about it and think through it and then get a chance because I had a great partner in Mark Hanfelt who said, yeah, go talk to Greg. 
And so we went to Greg and we talked to him about the problem. And then, um, and then we, and I got a chance to stand up in front of a client, pitch an idea. Um, and again, it turned out to not work. There were some other reasons why that, that problem solving wouldn't work, but it was, it was like taking those opportunities and understanding that like, that is a practice, like that kind of problem solving is why a lot of our clients hire us is because we can be creative in those moments. And so I looked at those as opportunities to like think outside the box, right? Yeah. And spend, even though it wasn't a big part of the practice, I actually spent a lot of brain power thinking about them, right? Like there's only so much brain power you need to expend to like answer interrogatories, right? Or like produce documents or review documents or like, you know, write a motion to dismiss. But problem solving, you can spend a lot of brain power to come up with like a really great idea. And so like that entrepreneurial opportunity, I love, it was great. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, also you weren't disillusioned by the fact it didn't, didn't end up working out. It, no, like, it look, great experience. I mean, the best, the best compliment we got was like, the client was like, that sounds like a really interesting, great idea. Let's go see where that goes. Yeah, That was the best. That was all the reward I needed. That it didn't work was okay. But today we're, today like, Clients still appreciate when you're like, hey, I have an idea that may or may not work. Let's talk this through. Right. They appreciate that all day long. And like, it's it's kind of what I think makes our practice super fun. Yeah, great perspective. And then, um, okay, so then you went back to the government a, a little bit in, uh, as a federal prosecutor. Um, and then you finally, you know, I think you got your first exposure to what you do now as far as yep. um, working in, in cybersecurity there as a federal prosecutor. So talk about, uh, I guess, that transition and what you did as a prosecutor. Yeah, so I always wanted to go back and do public service after my time clerking on the court. I just thought it was like a really important thing to to do in my career. Um, and being a prosecutor was something that I thought sounded super interesting, being in court every day, on your feet, pieces. Um, and so I went to be a prosecutor. I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Seattle for almost six years. Um, and um, I started out doing like most prosecutors doing general crimes. I did a lot of digital crime in the child exploitation arena, which was probably my first introduction to true, what, what today looks like forensics, right? And so that was a lot of like dead box forensics where you'd be working really closely with cart agents at FBI, pulling apart computers and figuring out whether you could prove some child exploitation crime or another. So I started doing a lot of digital related crimes at that point um, on top of my white collar background. Um, I pro I, I was involved in the, I was one of the prosecutors assigned to um, investigate the collapse of Washington Mutual. So I spent most of my career at the U.S. Attorney's Office doing other things as well as investigating the collapse of Washington Mutual and seeing if there were crimes committed there. Um, but I quickly morphed into doing uh, real what today would you think about a cybercrime, computer hacking um, uh, kinds of crimes. Um, I tried one of the very first digital crimes cases with where there were digital th digital threats on the internet. So we prosecuted a guy who were making death threats and bomb threats to blow up an oil refinery in uh, Seattle, outside of Seattle, and then uh, blow up and kill people at Boeing. Um, and, you know, people, internet threats today, like in those days were not common, right? Um, he was swatting people before swatting was a term. Um, and so we prosecuted him for all those things. Um, the interesting thing about that case was, um, most internet threats are not really super terrifying because they're just words on the internet. Uh, when we did a search warrant at his house, we seized 103 firearms, wow. um, including you know books on how to make bombs. Um, you know he had a he had a 50 caliber rifle there that uh, if you shoot 
it's designed, the bullet is designed to stop a Jeep in its tracks if you shoot the engine block. So the guy was pretty terrifying. Um, but that's where I really got my, that's where I really spent my time working on what today would be called cybercrime. So investigating and prosecuting, well, I'd say investigating a lot of cybercrime. We didn't prosecute a lot of people back then because it was really hard to get hands on bad guys. Um, but spent a lot of time and that's really where I cut my teeth and became and 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 did most of the work that now forms the foundation of the practice that we have. Interesting. And and so like the case you just described, it was more internet threats, but you also did like, you know, hacking type crimes too, or yep. that work? Yeah. No, we did we did a bunch of hacking crimes, but again, this was back in like 2008, 2009, 2010. And so it was really difficult to put handcuffs on bad guys. So I remember doing a hacking case. Uh, against a corporation in Seattle. We investigated it. We actually had a picture of the guy, we knew where he lived, but he happened to be residing in either Algeria or Morocco. I can't remember. And the agent came to me and said, I know where the guy lives. I've got his address. I've got his picture. I know his family looks like, but the case is over. I said, why? Because we're never going to get him extradited out of Algeria or Morocco, wherever he was. So let's move on and do something different. And that's basically all that ended up happening, right? Because, um, there wasn't, at that time, there wasn't the kind of international law enforcement cooperation that we have today, where if we did that case today, no, there would absolutely be a chance to go get that guy, right? Um, but at the time, there just wasn't. Interesting. Why Why is that? Why uh, today is it, is it a different landscape? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of different, there's a lot of work that got done between, frankly, between 2008 and 2015 timeframe, um, where international law enforcement cooperation became much more important and much stronger, right? Mm -hmm. And efforts across borders to conduct coordinated takedowns of whether it was botnets or criminal syndicates or whatever, they, they got more practice doing it. And the department got better at working across borders to coordinate with law enforcement agencies. And so today we see much more coordinated intelligence sharing, uh, law enforcement efforts and so on. And so that just didn't exist at the time. It just didn't exist. And it wasn't worth it, right, to make the investment to go do those things. And so we ultimately investigated a lot of crimes back then, um, really knew who had done it and had pretty good intelligence, but couldn't really do much about it practically, um, which ultimately was why I laughed, right? It was just, it was frustrating to know there are bad guys out there they can't do anything about. Um, and it was time to move on to do something else. And so after about five and a half years, six years of the attorney's office, uh, I decided it was time for a change. Interesting. And w was that, a you know, being a prosecutor, had the facts been different and you could have caught the bad guys, you would have, you, you wanted to stay or no, you always planned I on going have, back? Yeah, it's a good question. I probably would have stayed for a little while longer, um, but uh, I was involved in a couple really, really large investigations, for example, of Washington Mutual, um, of Backpage, that didn't amount to actual handcuffs on bad guys. And um, and it was that was hard, right? You I mean you invest years of your life into something that doesn't materialize into a product, and it's real difficult to say, right. I want to keep doing this forever. So mm -hmm. I think I may have stayed a little bit longer, but frankly, I think I got to the point where um I thought that there were other adventures out there. I think there was other challenges out there. I thought there was more difficult problem solving that uh, I wanted to tackle. And so I decided it was probably time for a change. Interesting. And uh, let's get into that then. The, the change you made, you went to DLA Piper and uh, I think you started working at that point in uh, cybersecurity law. So get into in, into that work. Yeah. So uh, 
it's a slightly funny story, which is um, I uh, I was hired as a partner at DLA Piper. Um, the plan, uh, I had put together a business plan like everybody else does, and it was designed to be a three-legged stool. I would do um, white-collar criminal defense work, uh, and I had a great mentor who I'd worked with, who I, I work with still today, John Wolf, who's a criminal defense lawyer in Seattle. Um, he's who wanted me to come join him at DLA Piper um, to help him support his practice. Um, DLA at the time had like three or four cases in Seattle that were headed to trial. They needed a they needed someone to do trial work for them. Um, so the second leg of the stool is why I would do civil litigation and particularly trial work because I had just come out of doing, you know, half a dozen trials in the attorney's office. And then the third leg of the stool is I would do this thing called cybersecurity, which nobody knew what it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, DLA's reaction was, look, we really need someone to try these cases. We really need someone to support John's practice in the white collar criminal defense side. So we don't understand what this cyber thing is. But if you want to spend 10% of your time doing that, that's fine. As long as you spend 90% of your time doing the other stuff. Hmm. So my three-legged stool became really kind of a two-legged stool with a little nub. Um, But um, that's how I got hired. And I had a really great business plan for what a cyber practice would look like. I thought I did. And, um, but nobody really understood it. Uh, Nobody understood. People understood at the time what privacy was. But what cyber was, was just data breach notification at the time. It wasn't what it is today, which is investigations, forensics, reputational management, notifications, class action litigation, all that stuff wasn't really in the, in the ambit. Uh, but I joined DLA Piper in September, I think, 2nd or 3rd of 2013. And then in December of 2013, Target reveals that it got hacked. And after that, I stopped really doing a whole lot of white collar civil litigation work at the time. And all clients needed was incident response help. Wow. And so like, if there was a moment in time where the practice shifted for me personally, it was target, right. And post target, I mean, we were doing that work before, but the demand wasn't as high. As soon as people understood the reputational impact that came with a data breach that was not handled as well as it could have been handled, uh, everybody, everybody wanted somebody who knew and had a plan. And so I spent the next, um, nine months at DLA before I left, or maybe a year at DLA before I left doing almost nothing but, um, incident response work. Wow. And, and, you know, you talked about, you came in thinking that you'd have the potential to, you know, expand the the program to the scale that it became. That's, that's how you came in thinking, you know, that, that, uh, Cybersecurity was a lot more than just breach yep. notification, and you 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 saw that vision long term. It just took a while to uh, to come to be. It it did, and they had a really great case study that I put put together from incidents that happened, and I and I really thought that crisis management work was something that people were going to need. Um, I I don't you know we called it that. People didn't understand what that meant because again, data breaches were handled as like, oh, we had a data breach. Here's all the data was exposed. Let's go notify all these people. And then you were done um, because it didn't, it didn't have the same reputation, like in an ecosystem, it didn't have the same reputational consequences after target. It did like people understood how, how impactful it could be to your reputation and how the careful management of an incident actually was a thing, right? It wasn't just, we'll hire a bunch of friends, people figure out what data got compromised and then go notify people. So um that changed the ecosystem. And so it was like, I was in the right time at the right place. Uh, But like you said, like I had an idea that this was something, I think 
you know, did we have every single piece of it together? No, but but we had a really pretty good idea of it. Um, and that was really the turning point um, and kind of never looked back since then. Fascinating. And then, uh, okay, so then in 2015, you went to Oric, which is uh, where you're at now. So talk about yep. that transition and uh, what you've been able to do there. Yeah, so um, I, uh, John Wolf and I, uh, who hired me at DLA, left um, in uh, January of 2015 and joined Oric. Um, and, you know, I, there's a lot of reasons I joined Oric, uh, which are probably long and not that interesting to a lot of people, but um, culturally it was a much better fit. Like it was a firm that really understood what we wanted to build. They didn't have a cybersecurity practice. They didn't understand what it was, to be honest. Um, but when they understood what it could be, they were like, we need that. And so we came here in 2015 um, and there was no real cyber privacy data innovation practice group like there is now. Um, uh, I had, again, I, I've been blessed to have like great mentors all along the way, but the chairman of the firm, who is still our chair, uh, said, this is something we need. I want you to go build it. And so for a good period of time, I spent my career trying to build a practice um, here at Oric. Um, and it was, and it was just, it was a real greenfield opportunity. We have great clients, great partners, great collaboration. And so just culturally, I thought this was a place where there was a lot of great opportunities, a lot of great people to work with. Um, and so came over here, made the change um, and just absolutely loving it. So That's great. And, and you know, in uh, something like cybersecurity or, you know, where you have a lot of crisis management, how did you sort of cultivate your, uh, your clients to know to, to come to you in those moments? Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, even to this day, it's hard. Um, the, you know, you can talk about what you do, but really at the end of the day, you have to be engaged with a client before the crisis happens. So like, yeah. like, so we say this in our practice, which is the best crisis management plan is practice, 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 right? Because you don't want to, for the first time, be doing something in a crisis that you've never done before, Right. right. So it's the same thing with your outside counsel or your forensic assistants or your PR people. Like you do, it, it's it's not the situation you ever want to be in where you're like, for the very first time, I'm going to call Arvin and this will be great. It doesn't work that way. Like we have to develop a relationship. I have to know how your executive team wants to work. I have to know what your board cares about. I have to know what your comms people make them go. I need to understand the products and who are the customer base. And like all of those things matter in managing a crisis. So the best way that we get that we begin to work with clients is by working with them before the crisis happens. So that's like this big advisory practice that we have of like incident preparation, tabletop exercises, all that stuff um, helps clients. But really one of the fundamental important things that's happening is we are developing an understanding for what makes you tick, what makes your executives tick, what makes your customers tick, what makes your products and services tick, right? What makes your industry tick? And once we have that and we're really experienced and sort of in it, we can help you form strategies to respond to a crisis that makes sense. We can't, it's because it's not, what we do is not building widgets, right? It's building really sophisticated, um, customized response strategies for clients. Yes, there's a general process, but all of the little things that really matter in a crisis, we do because we understand you as a client. And so those early engagements and early opportunities to work with clients are so formative and so important for like developing a relationship so that when I have to get on the phone with the CEO for the first time, she knows who I am or has some idea who I am. And she says, 
look, this is who we hired. This is why we hired him. I know we've worked with him and his team before in the past and she's good. Right. And so she feels comfortable putting me in front of her board. So her chair can have confidence that they're managing the incident in the right way. So all of those are based on early engagement. It's not just kind of waiting for the phone to ring. Yes, that happens. And we get called because we're really good at crisis management, but the best response efforts that we have for clients are the ones that we've worked with them ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great perspective. And then as far as just uh, the, the, the hours and whatnot as a, as a cybersecurity uh, lawyer, you know, is it true that all the, all the breaches happen on, you know, Friday before a long weekend or get into that? <laughs> okay. So you're going to jinx us because this is the Friday before a long weekend, Noah. So you that can't. That. No, yeah. No jinxes. Uh, um, but the answer is, uh, the answer is that they come in at all times of day. The ones that are the most memorable, the, the ones that come in on Fridays late in the afternoon. And so we think about that. Um, and then the other ones that are memorable, the ones that happen while I'm on vacation, which um, so in our practice, every incident gets a project name um, to protect client confidentiality and also just so that we have somebody to refer to. And for a while, all of the projects got named based on the location where I might have been in when I got the first phone call. And so <laughs> if you look at a lot of our project names historically. It's a lot of the places where I was on holiday or I was on a long weekend or I was like at a kid's baseball game and that was the ball field I was at. Um, so um, those are the ones that are most memorable uh, are the ones that come in. You know, we've had, we have a lot, we have four years in a row. I had one come in on Christmas Eve. Um, oh my goodness. So, um, so yeah, uh, I don't think they all, I don't think if you looked at them all, they all come in on Fridays uh, at the end of the day, but I think that's the ones that we remember. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And then, you know, looking forward, what uh, else is there to accomplish in your career? Um, so I, I, so when I think in the world of cyber, we're going to come to where I started my career, which is in white collar. Right. So, um, it, it, you know, state the obvious, right. The SEC is getting more aggressive. The DOJ just prosecuted, Joe Sullivan, who I represent now, um, the former chief security officer at Uber. Um, and I've represented CISOs in their individual capacity in the past um, in connection with the Yahoo bre data breach and so on. But I, I really think that the government, uh, for better or for worse, um, really is looking at individual responsibility in connection with cyber attacks. And I think that more and more clients are having problems that resemble white collar type problems. Um, and so I think that there is a need to make sure the clients understand what those risks are, what their responsibilities are and what they ought to do. And this is more than just like victim referral to law enforcement and coordinating with law enforcement. This is really about thinking about the consequences for your choices from SEC perspective, DOJ perspective, FCA, like False Claims Act, I think are all going to be a place where the government's going to put more focus on. So I think that's, you know, I, I think a lot more work will be done there. Um, I, the other thing I think that's a growing need is online safety. So we have an online safety practice that's built around how to keep and think about people's safety online. This is everything from Section 230 litigation to how do you build compliance programs for companies that ma ingest massive amounts of data, for example, in AI contexts, right? What happens when people upload images of CSAM? What are your obligations and responsibilities? How do you build a platform that's based on content sharing that's safe, 
right? That complies with all your obligations that make sure that they have programs and compliance policies to protect, you know, the, the user base that's using that um, against being exposed to or having images of child exploitation uploaded or sex trafficking or anything. So I think there's a great world of online safety that is really emerging fast and furious that um, that I want to, that I'm really committed to building that practice. Um, and the last thing is I want to try a couple more cases. Uh, I tried a case in September, which uh, after a little bit of time on the bench, not having tried a case was incredibly fun. Um, and I'm, you know, looking forward to maybe trying one or two more cases before my time's up. Interesting. Do you see yourself going back to the government in uh, any way? Uh, I don't, I think my government days are over. Uh, there are times that I wonder what it'd be like to go back and be a line prosecutor and just prosecute cases and try cases. Uh, I think I may be done with that part of my life, but uh, I won't ever say never. I hear you. Okay, my last question for you is, you know, looking back at your career, what are the moments that sort of you're most proud of that uh, you just really felt good about? Um, I'll say two things. I'll say uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is we have built a diverse team that represents and supports our clients. So today, the team that we have that works in privacy and cybersecurity um, is about 70% made up of people of color and women and people from uh, the LGBTQ plus community. And I think that that's, um, that is a hallmark for the practice that we built. It's something I'm completely committed to. And it has been one of the joys of bringing up junior lawyers into those ranks, coaching, mentoring, teaching, training, giving opportunities so that people in, um, in those populations can be successful. Um, and I we've done that because there's a reason to do it. It's because we solve problems better when we're diverse. Like we just have more perspectives, more ideas, more thoughts on the table. We're more creative. We get better results for clients. And that's the second thing I'm probably the most proud of. I'm, I'm just really proud of, we have some of the best moments in my career is creative problem solving, right? Things that we've done that nobody thought to do. Nobody had an idea to do it that way. and we. We built solutions for clients, not being lawyers, but using the law as a tool to drive a result. And uh, and those are the best moments. Those are the most rewarding moments is when a client was facing a massive problem. And so uh, of a massive potential fine and liability was a nonprofit healthcare institution uh, because the AG wanted to find them uh, $160 million, which are run the largest provider of medical services to the indigent Hispanic community in the state of Washington would run them out of business. We turned around and sued the state attorney general. Uh, we didn't wait for them to sue us, we sued them and we settled the case for $3 million, right? Um, and so we've done things like that in creative problem solving that I think they're the most proud moments of my career. Just, just when we sat back, put our feet up on the table, thought outside the box and tried to solve problems using the law as a tool, but really trying to solve the business problem and issue. And that's been some of the best work I've ever done. Wow. Yeah. Great perspective. And uh, that I'll read the rhyme and then we'll sign off. So awesome. Arvin began working as a teacher. He now analyzes data security features. After law school, Arvin worked at Wilmer Hale. His career is a fascinating tale. And uh, with that, thank you so much for joining the podcast, Arvin. Thanks, Noah. It's great.